Hey, happy October to you in your garden. Hoping the onset of fall or spring, depending on where you're listening in from, brings beauty and assurance in your place. I wanted to pop in here quick before we get started this week with two updates. The first on our ongoing donor challenge underway. We set a goal of 100 new donors by the end of 2020, and as we enter into the last quarter of the year, with the full moon and the first of the month today, we are at 72 donors. Wow, we are so close. If you're a donor in support of this work, thank you. If you find value here and you're interested in and able to join us in making it possible, just follow the support button link at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. All contributions go directly to support the costs of producing this weekly program. The second update is that this month is chock full of speaking events for me around the country and around the importance of cultivating our places and the powerful work of the women in the earth in her hands. You can find all of these events through the events tab at cultivatingplace.com. And I want to call your attention to one of these events in particular. On October 6th, Tuesday, I will be virtually joining Monticello and the Heritage Harvest Festival out of Charlottesville, Virginia, in conversation with two extraordinary women. One of these women is Ira Wallace. She helped co-found the Heritage Harvest Festival many years ago now, and she is a lead member of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, where she enlivens and stewards and protects heirloom seeds for all of us, including researching, honoring, and sharing the histories of seeds of the African diaspora. Ira and I will also be joined by Peggy Cornett, an incredible plantswoman, garden historian, and curator of plants at Monticello for many years now. The three of us will get into the heart of the importance of plants, seeds, food, and community, and getting ever clearer and truer understandings of the past in order to face the future for all of our collective well-being. If I were to have you join me for any of my October conversations, this would be one of them. All information to register and support the work of the festival and these women is in the event listing at cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. I am really looking forward to being with some of you there. And thank you again for all of your support. Now settle in for a great, deep, artistic, and very human garden life journey story with Potter Francis Palmer. If you don't already know her work, you will love this artist and plantswoman. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we kick off October with a dive into creativity, the way gardeners harness it, riff off of it, and share its results forward with the larger world. And I am so pleased that our first creative in this exploration is the potter Francis Palmer, a previous guest on the program and one of the 75 women featured in my book, The Earth in Her Hands. She is a fantastic inspiration for any gardener maker out there. In a world that needs a great deal from us right now, we can almost never go wrong by igniting our creativity. Frances is a gardener, a knitter, a cook, a beekeeper, a mother, a partner, and a businesswoman. Her one-of-a-kind handmade pottery is a joy to the eye, the hands, and the heart, as full of personality as it is functional and beloved by people around the world. Thirty years into her career, her first book, Frances Palmer, Life in the Studio, Inspiration and Lessons on Creativity, publishes this coming week on October 6th by Artisan Press. She joins me this week from her studio in Connecticut, 
Welcome, Francis. I am so pleased to have you back. Thank you so much for inviting me. Many listeners, I think, will be familiar with you and your work. I'd love to get started by having you tell us your relationship to plants and gardens and landscapes right now, both personally and professionally, and maybe go a little deeper into how I just described the interrelationship between your garden and your artistry in life. Well, as the years have gone by, I am so involved in creating a garden of plants, not just dahlias, but I've been bringing in a lot of perennials, a lot of pollinators, and having that palette of starting flowers from very early spring here in Connecticut and keeping it going all through to actually now even beyond frost because I've gotten involved in in raising heirloom chrysanthemums. But I originally started gardening to have flowers to put in the vases to document the pots with with photos to document for scale and for just giving them some sort of reference. But I feel now that the the garden and the the pots are are equally important to me and are so intertwined. Yeah. Especially in this time, this this time of the pandemic, I can't tell you how much how many times during the day I go into the garden and just stand there for some sort of tranquility and peace of mind and kind of escape from the reality of the world that we're in. So it's, it's, it's been really fundamental. And I often think if everybody in the world could have just a small area to go in and stand in during the day, I think, I think the world would be such a different place. Yeah. And I feel like uh, in the course of the pandemic and all the other anxieties at play right now, people have really returned to the simplicity now, that's the wrong word, but the the essence of what it is to just go outside and be, uh, it has, I think. It's like like the therapy of digging into the earth. There's something so Mm. therapeutic Mm -hmm. about just working with something that's alive and growing, but yet its own, its own personality. Yeah, definitely. And that personality is so beautifully captured in a variety of interwoven threads in your book and in your, and in your life. Um, Before we get into those threads, Let's go back just a little bit and describe for listeners, and and much of this is in the book, Life in the Studio, and I love that sort of the layered uh, meaning in that word life. Take people back to where you were born and raised and who were the people and places and, and plants even that grew you into a person for whom this meaningful activity and and all of its expressions would be a driving force for you, Francis? Well, um, I was born in Morristown, New Jersey. And when I grew up there uh, in the 60s and 70s, it was, well, the history of Morristown is fantastic because it's a revolutionary war town. George Washington wintered there. I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly, 1773, 71. And so a lot of buildings were from that time. But when I was growing up there, it was extensively farmland. There were still dairy farms and, and, and corn, lots of corn. There were farm stands, peaches. I mean, Jersey is called the garden state. People think that's funny, but it it was, it is a really beautiful state. And I just grew up immersed in having all this produce around me. My mother had a garden. She grew flowers. She had vegetables and it was just something that was sort of part of the fabric of my life. And I didn't really even think about it. And then I ended up leaving and going to college. And I actually moved into New York City, went to university there and lived there for many years until I got married and we moved out to Connecticut full time. And, and then suddenly things that were sort of 
interwoven into my psyche just started to kind of come out and go, oh, I can, now I can grow flowers myself. Now I can go to farm stands. Now I can cook all this amazing food that I'm, I was used to having as a child. So I think it was really very natural for me to kind of move into that direction. I didn't really quite know what I was doing, but like the ceramics, I kind of work by that trial and error. And I, I, I attempt something, it either works or it doesn't. I step back, I analyze, and then I, and then I move forward and try something different or improve upon what I did. And uh, I've kind of been that way my whole life. I went to school and studied art history because I felt that I would always make the art on my own, which I have. And so the academic side of my education was really, really important to me. Mm. And, you know, a couple of things after reading the book that really struck me was this sort of recurring and constant desire to make things yourself with your own hands. And maybe its first really strong expression was in knitting. Yeah. Is that, am I right when I yes, say that? I love, I love using my hands. I, I love making things because I feel by making things, I know them. And mm-hmm. as opposed to just going in and, and buying a sweater off in a, in a store or, or the same thing about making a pot or when you grow a flower, a flower that you've grown yourself is so radically different an experience as going into a flower shop or going to the wholesale market in New York City. I mean, it's just, I just have this craving to, to understand the essence of things, but in a very kind of, I guess, sharing way, because it's not something I, I like to put it out in the world. I like to know about it and then share the knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. And th- there is as well, like in that making and the knowing and then the sharing, there is this strong kind of um, yin yang between the beauty and then the practicality. And I, I really picked up on that, um, in our first interview. And then when I interviewed you for my book, the earth in her hands, but then when I read in life in the studio about the early, uh, kind of entrepreneurship of the, the potential knitting, uh, line or hand knitwear line there, there was this great, like, ah, like this is something that's really like she wants them to be beautiful, but she wants people to use what she makes in, in this, which is both the sharing and the practicality of it. Yeah. I mean, that was such a great experience, but it was one of those times where I felt like, I don't know if I had the, I didn't have the life skills to kind of make it go forward as a viable business. I, I liked the making Mm. of the sweaters and I liked the designing but all the other things that had to come into play in terms of working with the stores, I realized that really wasn't something I was, I understood how to do. So I kind of stepped back. And then, so it was interesting when I started making ceramics and deciding how I want to go about selling them, that experience of having it not quite go as, as, as well as I had hoped for the knitwear I could mm-hmm. apply to that and think, hmm, like what could I, what can I do differently now that I wasn't able to do then? And one of the things, yeah. like having a garden, is that I'm able to c- kind of control all aspects of the business as opposed to putting a sweater in a store where I'm dependent upon the the, the owner mm-hmm. to pay me and all sorts of like seasonality. I didn't enjoy the seasonality of sweaters where they would say, okay, well, that was great six months ago. What do you have now? There's a timelessness about a garden and ceramics that really appeals to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you had a couple of real turning points in your life that brought you to the, the moment where you decide to take on ceramics and pottery and they, um, and that then is what sort of catapults you back into, uh, or not back into, but into gardening, which you referred to a little bit earlier. 
Can you describe for listeners the moment in your life and, and what you were studying? You had you know, done all of your academic work. You had a strong background in, in arts and uh, history, and you had started the idea of this small business. And then take us from there in a more detailed way. I mean, one of the things I would have to say was that I had no grand plan. I, I kind of am the sort of person where I'm faced with a situation and then I assess it. And I think that you're referring to the fact that I was doing the knitwear business and I met my husband as actually a result of the business because I, I was recommended to speak to him because he's a menswear designer as, as a production person. And of course, we met and we fell in love. And then guess what? We had a baby. <laughs> and I, then we were going back and forth to Connecticut and he made the executive decision that we would live in Connecticut full time with the baby. However, I'm the youngest of four and I had never seen a baby in my life. She was born at Christmas. So in the dead of winter and after New Year's, he would get up in the morning and leave for New York and not get home until eight at night. And I was in the country with a newborn I didn't know anybody. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I, nobody ever talked to me about postpartum depression or any of breastfeeding didn't go well. I mean, it was really a disaster. And I just started to fall apart. I couldn't, I couldn't find out who am I anymore. I was just sort of in this, this fog. And, and Wally said to me, well, you know, you're kind of out here now. Why don't you think of something you've always wanted to do and try that. And I had been studying in reading in books, the Omega Workshop, which around 1914 was a craft guild that produced pottery. And they lived in a house, Charleston, out in the country. And they did all the painting on the walls and the fabrics and the pottery. And it was this whole sort of total vision of an environment that completely captured me. And I just said out of the blue, oh, I think I'll learn how to do pottery. I'd like to learn how to make my own plates for the table because I love to cook and it wouldn't be, wouldn't it be fabulous to have all my own things on the table. So I signed up for a, a throwing class at the local art guild in New Canaan. And I started and, and it was just one of those things where when the minute I sat down, it just said, Oh, you know, I love this. I love the texture of the clay. I love the wheel. I love the making. It just it just kind of clicked and it was so essential for me because it actually gave me so much perspective on being a mother that that wasn't the only thing I did. And it just, you know, talk about yin yang. I felt like I was better at both of them as a result of doing them simultaneously. What year would this have been, Francis? Well, my daughter was born in 19, the end of 1986. So I would say like, 1987, 88, I really hit my stride. Also, the other thing back to the Omega workshop is that the art guild was great, but they were kind of doing like 60s heavy duty stoneware. And Mm. I wanted to do this white, I wanted to use the white clay as a canvas the way Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell and all the people in the Omega workshop. So I realized I would need to set up my own studio and kind of figure out how to do that myself. So I found a used wheel for like $50 and a wedging table for $25, which I still use to this day, and a little electric kiln for $75. And that, and I set up my studio in my house and my husband was like, Oh, uh -oh. (laughs) what have I started? (laughs) Right. What have um, I unleashed here? Yeah, really. And that was it. And I just never looked back. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Frances Palmer is a gardener, a cook, and a potter whose handmade ceramics are integral to her strong desire to make and know the functional items in her life. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Jennifer. This week, and in kicking off this mini-series on different ways people put their garden variety creativity to work in the world, I'm riffing off two quotes frequently attributed to Albert Einstein. The first one is this, quote, 
The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. End quote. And this paraphrase of a point of his quote, The world we've created is a product of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. End quote. And finally, along a similar line, that old adage on insanity quote, The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and somehow expecting different results. End quote. Which is where creativity comes in, all of our creativity. The many problems we face in our own lives, in our larger world, even in our gardens, they are pleading with us, it seems to me, to open our gazes and look at the, quote, problem, end quote, differently, from a different angle. These problems are asking me to apply my greatest creativity to my thinking about the situation, not once, but again and again. And in doing so, to look and listen and feel for insights about ourselves, about the situation, and about a new way forward. In her work, in her book, and in our conversation today, Frances is sharing her stories of love, loss, learning, and ultimately the making of a very good life. So many things look so differently from outside of a situation or, say, from an Instagram feed. They can look so easy and lovely and carefree. But as Frances is firm in claiming, her creativity certainly has been forged in loss and grief as much as in crafting and discipline and love. For example, when she was a young woman, her older brother died of an overdose after being prescribed opioids for an injury. This was years before this was a common cultural awareness. This changed her life forever. It changed the way she thought about everything. Fast forward to her postpartum experience, which she shares in our conversation, and the struggle of it, which she came out of in finding pottery. These stories of loss and grief are accompanied by everyday stories of the loss and breakage of prized pots, of broken pots on arrival to clients, these among many others. I love and have written down a note for myself of when Francis says to us, quote, by making things, I know them, end quote. And I think about this in my garden nature, because in part, if I am of the garden's nature as much as it is of mine, then in, quote, making with the garden, I don't just know her better, I know me better. And in knowing me better, that's, that is the point at which I can break out of old thinking and grow new, creative thinking. This was like a bright light and a psychological lightening for me. This makes sense to me and sparks my creativity. Am I making sense to you over there in your garden? I hope so. We're back now to our conversation with potter and gardener Frances Palmer. When we left off in the conversation, Frances had shared that it was out of her new mother postpartum isolation in a new home environment that she came to pottery in the first place, born of both struggling to find her feet as a new mother and her abiding interest in the handmade art and everyday life objects of the Omega Workshop and Vanessa. Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant at Britain's Charleston House in the early 1900s. As we come back, Frances is sharing the struggle of her first six to nine months of motherhood that propelled her ultimately to find her own balance. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just remember I took this baby to her two week checkup. I'd never figured out how to bathe her. You know, her eyes were infected. She weighed less than when she was born. I mean, 
I, because I couldn't, I, my breastfeeding was not going well. And, and the doctor took like one look at me and said, oh boy, you know, this one's falling off the cliff. And so they made me come in every day to weigh the baby more for me than the baby, just so I could talk to human beings. And they told me to mm -hmm. start giving her a bottle in the evening when I was tired so that it took off the stress that I would know she would have other thing, you know, she would have other milk besides me. And she, he told me to have a beer every night at five. And, you know, gradually I, I pulled myself together, but it was, it was terrifying in the beginning. It is. It is. <laughs> so, um, having had two of my own. Yes, it is. And I, you know, and I think we as women are more apt to talk about this in small groups together, you know, outside of public forum. And I think our culture has come a long, long way. Thank goodness. Yeah, totally. Like I would never let my daughter go through any of that stuff. And then of course, nature is an amazing thing right. because I went on to have, you know, two more children, two boys. And by the, by the time I had the third, I was like, you know, spinning those, those pots and have holding him up with one arm, you know, no, I'm just joking. It was like, you know, so yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But we learn, that's the point, is that there is this, you know, and I, I would say, you know, it is the same with your perseverance and learning curve in making pots and in gardening and in cooking, that um, they are all processes we have to learn and practice. Exactly. And, and we sometimes only get to hear the end part of the story, right. not the process part of the story. And that's one of the things I just loved about your book is how very clear and methodical it was in the process yeah. that it took you. Um, and I just, I think those, those, you know, no one is born knowing how to garden or how to throw a pot. You might be born with a a natural inclination to love it or right. be good at it, but you still don't know how to do it exactly. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize and is that, that, you know, it, it has to almost be a daily practice. If it's something that you really want to know, you just have to have enormous patience and be willing to say, this is something I need to do every day. And that is both a discipline and, you know, a permission slip to use the, the terminology of Brene Brown, but it, it's something we have to allow ourselves as well as make ourselves do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's like in the book, I, and it's so funny because with my editors, they kind of wanted to ch change it. And I kept saying, no, no, what I wanted to say is that it's not an effort for me to come over to the studio. It's like, I know this sounds kind of corny, but I wake up in the morning and I long mm -hmm, to be mm -hmm. there. You know, it's like when I leave a project at the end of the day, I'm so happy knowing that I have something to return to in the mm -hmm. morning. You know, like I don't have to think about it. There it is ready to be, you know, continued or finished or start, you know, there's always something I know that's waiting for me. And that I, I, I really, I kind yeah. of thrive yeah. on that, you know? So, Okay, you've been at this work for over 30 years, I think now. Your uh, process yeah. and your actual, like the look and feel of your uh, pottery, which is, you do beautiful things for the table, but, um, you know, of course, I'm a gardener. So the thing that draws me the most is, and I'm not one of those wonderful, like, gardener cooks. Uh, so I am really drawn to the vessels that display and hold plants and fruit and flowers and branches. And in my mind, they actually teach me something about what my plants look like or how they move or, you know, how they want to be displayed. Like your pottery asks me to look at my plants in a different, more expansive way. And I love that about them. Why did you decide to write a book, Francis? How, how, after all this time, what made you say, it's time and I'm going to write this and this is how and why? Well, I, I kind of, it didn't really happen that way. Um, a good friend of mine who's a literary agent as well kept saying, you've got to write a book, you've got to write a book. And I would always say to her, yes, yes, I know, but I'm really not quite sure what I want to say. 
And then a couple years ago, Leah Ronan from Artisan Books reached out to to Carla and reached out to me and said, we would love you to write a book about your creative process. Like what, how do you organize your thinking about your work and your, and how you do your studio and sort of, and it gave me a point of view that I couldn't come to on my own. And their idea was that, you know, so many people would like to have a creative life and maybe some of the things that I would write could give them some ideas and, and what I say, what I say in the forward is that this this process is very personal to me. It doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody or everybody or you know should be doing this. It's just maybe somebody can pick and choose certain things that would resonate with them. And maybe you're not able to be a potter full time, but you could you could work at a studio one day a week or you you could be a gardener i mean they're they're just so i had to sit down and write how do how do i think about things and that was really challenging for me for a number of reasons one because i work by myself everything is very internal and so many of the conversations that i put down in the book are things that i would have never talked to anybody about ever it's just that my editors and they all said, okay, this, you need to, if this is part of your practice, this is what you have to discuss. And it was, it was challenging and it it actually made me quite vulnerable on many levels, but I got a lot of encouragement and, and, and I, I can say that it's, it's very true to me. And I, I hope people are interested in it. You know, you, a couple of people recently have said to me, oh, you know, I read your book and I, and then they would ask me a question and I would kind of stare at them in disbelief, kind of like you, like, oh my gosh, you actually read the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you write a book and this is my first book and it didn't, I hadn't really taken it down the road to the point where people would come back to me and say that they had read my words, you yeah. know? And it is so much about... Um life itself uh you you write somewhere in in the introduction that it's all about living with the clay and when i when i read that sentence i highlighted it and i thought that's kind of our job as humans is to like live with the clay of ourselves and keep molding it and molding it and hopefully enjoying it more and improving it more and knowing it more whatever improving means but the and you this is this analogy is certainly not lost on you in the book and you you have this interwoven thread between the work of being a potter and both very creative but also very disciplined and a a solid businesswoman who understands how she wants to run her business and then as a cook and then as a gardener and maybe I would put gardener in the middle but I'm not sure which one of the plates of this uh braid you want to talk about first but they they seem to have at least in this book and at this moment in your life they are a three-part harmony of almost equal um importance yeah i mean absolutely i just um i i guess my only response is they all bring me joy and i feel that that is such an essential ingredient i feel that that joy is permeated in what i make or what i grow and i if i'm if i'm taking an order for a pot and I'm sending it to somebody. I I want that I want that kind of karma about the piece. So I don't know I don't know how to separate them either. I want to I want to dive into how you organized the book, but a, a couple of things strike me, and and one is that if someone were to encounter your work, um, you know, on the pages, say most recently of House and Garden UK, or you know some of your original. Um, features in House and Garden uh, out of New York when it was still going. Uh, You know, there is this high-end kind of rarefied aesthetic to it. Um, 
but it really is a an incredibly personal and I, I again I'm I'm headed towards the word simple and I don't quite mean it that way but there's this incredible humility and personal sincerity that you put into the artistry and the research behind your designs and your influences and I I kind of want to take down that barrier of of it being this rarefied uh, item at the end and get back to the human of of how you make them. Can you walk listeners through kind of the iterations of, of your designs and your, like the personality of your work coming out of the, the pottery over time? Sure. Um, well, in terms of how I organize the book, it, it was very important to me and I had to kind of, you know, put my foot down a little bit and say, I want the essay about, about have, being a functional potter to be one of the first essays, because I feel that philosophy is kind of what flows through my work. If, if it is at all rarefied, I would only say so in the sense that I make everything myself. So by, by that, by nature of that, it's always going to be limited. And, you know, people over the years have said, well, why don't you get, why don't you get people to come in and throw for you? Or I can come in and glaze for you. And, oh, why don't you get someone to pack for you? And I just, that doesn't interest me. I'm interested in doing it from start to finish. So by nature of that, I can only make what I can make. Um, but, but, I, but the, the functionality and the idea, again, that people are going to have these pieces in their home and interact with them daily, whether it is a vase or a bowl or a mug, is really central to my thinking. That was the first essay I wanted to have. And, and so we kind of jumped around a little bit between, I didn't, we didn't want to have too much biography, only, only the, enough biography that it assisted the story. And then there are these different essays on kind of philosophies, like a row is a row or, you know, laugh of the day, it's just certain kind of precepts that I, I base my thinking on. And then there are certain aspects of, of production, like how do you make this pot? How do you make that pot? What kind of clays do I use? You, you know, my experience in going to China, where am I thinking? So we, we spent a tremendous amount of time organizing the essays so that it, it doesn't have, any, it's not chronological, it's just kind of more about concepts of, of organizing my life in a creative manner. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Frances Palmer is a gardener, a cook, and a renowned potter whose handmade ceramics are integral to her strong desire to make and know the functional items in her life. We'll be right back for more with Frances and her fabulous pots in action. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud even more this week. The interweaving of who Francis is and how pottery and gardening and cooking and family are all interdependent for her. And in writing this book, she is not just sharing lessons on making pots or pastry dough or flower arrangements, but she is sharing lessons on life, which is exactly what this teacher craftswoman intended. The main sections of the book are entitled, Begin as You Mean to Go On, Routine is Everything, and Looking Forward. Some of the subsection titles are, Practice Makes Purpose, Finding My Calling, On Perseverance, Being Centered, On Laughter, On Being Kind to Yourself, the inner voice, and on looking straight ahead. I want to read to you what Francis shares in On Looking Straight Ahead. 
I needed to read these words right now. So maybe you do too. She writes, quote, Many years ago, I participated in the well-known and attended annual gift show at the Javits Convention Center in New York City. I was completely daunted and overwhelmed. All the other booths looked bigger, better organized, and definitely more pulled together than mine. What was I thinking with my tiny company, trying to compete with much more established vendors? When my friend David Hopkins, then the merchandise and store director for the Metropolitan Museum shops, came into my booth, I started to cry. He said, Francis, don't look right. Don't look left. Look straight ahead. With those simple words, he reminded me that I can only put my own best efforts forward and that nothing good comes from comparing yourself with others. Francis goes on to write, I think of this every time I'm challenged to maintain focus. It works for me on so many levels. One simply has to stick to one's vision and not get distracted by myriad things that exist in the world. Whenever my eye starts to go astray and the voice of self-doubt creeps in, I take a deep breath, recall David's advice, and get back on track. Francis ends by saying, This mantra also resonates with me as I seek to stretch my work in uncharted directions. In pottery, as in everything, frankly, she says, trends come and go. It's easy to get bogged down. But I work hard not to pay attention to trends, but rather stay true to myself in whatever I make. End quote. Thank you, Francis Palmer, for these lessons on life, on gardening, and on making. And we're back now to our conversation with Potter, Cook, mother and gardener Frances Palmer, who's sharing with us her garden life journey and her work as a potter of all manner of things, from garden pots to flower vases to cake plates and coffee mugs. Her work is full of personality, beauty, and humor, all with a very human touch. As we come back, she shares more about her ancient and modern influences and inspirations and how she works towards balance in her creative life, in and out of the garden. Especially because of the art history, I am always amazed and in awe of of ancient ceramics. And I do feel very privileged and and grateful to be part of this, this practice of, through millennia that people have always made things for people to live with on a daily basis. Everything I do kind of flows from this, this philosophy. And then my editor, Ellen, found this wonderful book by Mar, I mean, poem rather, by Marge Percy about, you know, you go in and you look at, at an amphora in a, in a museum, but at one point, somebody was using that and yet as time has gone on it's transcended into this beautiful object of grace and beauty that we look at as an abstract thing but so so that's another thing about ceramics it had it has that ephemeral side and functional side and it can be an object to look at or it can be something that holds the flowers and and so many of my clients will say to me I love to just have the pot just there with nothing in it. I just, it doesn't have to have anything in it. And that, you know, that to me makes me so happy because I feel it, it has to have that kind of presence as well as, as a functionality. Well, and it is this uh, beautiful parallel of paying attention to yourself as the maker, as much as you are paying attention to um, the the media that you're working with, whether that's the bees or the garden or food or the clay, and that uh, knowing yourself uh, after this many years that, you know, it's time to go see a museum and visit old friends, um, artists there, uh, you know, not literally, but 
metaphorically visit them. Um, Some of your favorite pots or see new exhibitions. And you you do have this wonderful thread of self-taught, that seems like a strange way to say that, but of constant research and reflection. And for instance, your trip to China, can you explain, um, because that's a wonderful example of you saying, I want to learn more about this this particular tradition. Can you share a little bit more about that experience and what you took away from it, Francis? Sure, sure. So when I, so as I was learning ceramics, as I said earlier, I started with the white earthenware. And then because of the garden, I started working with terracotta. But I spent a lot of time at the Metropolitan Museum studying the Chinese and the Korean Japanese ceramics and realized that my next foray needed to be porcelain. I needed to learn how to throw and make glazes and, and do this high fire clay, which, which required a whole new set of equipment. I needed a different kind of kiln. I needed a whole different way of approaching the clay body. And I started to do it and I really loved it. I love the translucency. I love the transparency. It's so elegant and so simple, but yet incredibly challenging. And I realized that if for me to really understand porcelain, I needed to go to China. And someone had told me about a residency in Jindajen, which is a city where they've been making porcelain for a thousand years. And they said, there's a residency residency where artists from all over the world come to this place and you can stay as long as you want. I thought a month would be about as long as I could handle being away. And a lot of the artists that come work with the artisans there because they're kind, they are master mold makers, they're master glazers. And so I, I applied and I, I went in May of 2013 and it was such it was such a fantastic experience because I did I was able to observe how porcelain is made and they do it today essentially the same way they did it a thousand years ago which is that every artisan has their own task their own craft so there's a person who throws the pot there's a person who trims the pot there's a person who makes the glazes. There's a person who fires the pot. Every step that I do myself in the process of making something, a different artisan does on the same pot. None of the pots are signed. It's a very kind of abstract and conceptual situation. So I was able to have a space in the residency where I could throw the clay, although the clay, the porcelain there for throwing was radically different from what I had to work with in the States. So it wasn't so easy for me. So the pots that I did there were (laughs) really quite small, but it didn't matter. I just wanted to go from A down to Z. And then I spent time going to the museums there and walking around the city. They had this fantastic museum, a kiln museum, that showed they they made replicas of all the different kilns from ancient times all the way up to the present. And it really, it really kind of gave me that that sort of underpinning of what what is porcelain. And it was so interesting because two weeks before I'd gotten there, Edmund DeWall had been there because he was in the process of writing his book, The White Road. So so much of what is in that book, I kind of paralleled him. Of course I didn't write a book, but I I just felt that I had kind of grasped this knowledge that is kind of essential to me when I'm making something. I just, I just have to know. I, I have this. I just have to know. And that's what. That's what you know pushes me forward. Now, just out of curiosity, in that workshop in China, were most of the people who work professionally in the process? Was there a gender? split was it pretty equal was it more men than women um in the men in the artists in the residency that was split but the men the the people the chinese that make the pots i would probably say i don't know 80 90 percent men yeah the you know there's so much to talk about in in the book and the the lessons and the very specific uh lessons you offer out both you know mental and emotional but also physical like 
you know, how to make a mold, to do flower casts, how to, you know, all the tools you need. Um, you are very generous in your specific instructions on how to get started uh, down this particular creative path. One of the ones that really resonated with me was this, um, and, and you have referred to it a little bit earlier, um, but a decision you make, and, and you make it at a couple of different you make it once, but then it is reinforced for you a couple of different times. And that is this dedication to keeping the process all yours, all in-house, so that you you sort of, you know, shepherd and birth each pot from start to finish. And one of the times this is reaffirmed for you is in a decision to not have someone else come and help you pack the pots. And then another time this is reaffirmed for you is in this workshop in um, China. And there is some like just lovely creative process ownership there, um, as well as just a knowledge of yourself and what's going to work for you in the face of a culture that I would guess has encouraged you to scale up, scale up, scale up many times over. Yes, definitely. Could you tell the story of making the decision to repack things yourself and that affirmation moment? I had, I had hired a, a man to help me pack, but we started to, we started to not get along well because he was in the habit. He would say, I'll be there at nine in the morning. And then at nine at night, which was the worst absolute, absolute time for me, he would text me and say, oh, I can't come tomorrow. And, and I, after that experience with that person, I made a couple of rules for myself, such as do not answer any email or text after like five or six in the evening because I get very tired and cranky and I... So what happened was that we weren't getting along well. He came in, he was packing pots for me and I, they started arriving to, the, to my um, collectors broken. And I just thought, okay, there's like bad, bad, bad air happening around these pots. And I thought, you know, I, I go to all this trouble to make the work and why not just see it through to the end and do the packing? And it really made all the difference in the world. So he just kind of walked out on me one day. I really learned a lot about how, how to be polite to people. I, I lost my temper because I answered him at nine at night, which I will never do again. And so I, that was a very good experience for me. I'm incredibly, I am so polite now with people who helped me because I felt I should have never answered him. And, but back to the packing thing, so now what I do is I set aside time every day to do, even if I only get two or three boxes out, I take that time, every shape, every order, every pot is different. So it's kind of a mathematical game because I have to decide, how am I going to wrap this pot? How is it going to fit in the box? And I just, I just do it myself. And it takes longer and it seems like a tedious exercise, but to me, I feel like I've really completed the circle of that the life of that piece and I can send it out into the world knowing that I've put it in the best possible shape it can be to to be banged around on its way to the <laughs> to the collector as a person who has received one of your boxes uh in in the past I you know I come back to uh, a line that you also wrote in the introduction, which is, my hand is forever present and a part of my spirit is carried with each vessel. And um, that is true all the way through to um, receiving the box and opening it and knowing that someone like took a lot of time and care to do even those steps. And it, uh, it really reinforces the daily ritual of this art that is your steadfast companion and in, um, you know, a major part of what your life is, Francis, and it shows in every piece you create. So, oh, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> I really appreciate that. You know, as we as we finish up here, there are you know so many 
colliding urgencies in our world right now from COVID-19, the social justice reckoning, the environmental uh, degradation that we are witnessing all around us from hurricanes to forest fires. When you come back to your handmade, heartfelt, creative work. You know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is we need so much creative thinking in our world right now to address and move forward in better ways. Has has Have these times reinforced for you or intensified your own personal mission? Speak to us a little bit on, on that before we go. Um, absolutely. I, I think I think it's so important to be a good citizen. There, there's so many, there are so many big things happening, and there's people out in the public world. But I feel, and 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 it can be so easy to feel that one one small person has no control over the situation. So, so my approach to that is on. I don't go out a lot, I must say. I'm, I'm here on, on the property, I'm here in my studio. When I go out into the world, I always wear a mask. I always um, you know, give distance to people. I'm very polite of people's space. I feel, I feel that it's, I try to be the best citizen on a day-to-day level that I can be. I try to to be responsible with my materials, with my chemicals, uh, with how I recycle things. I, I just, I keep it on a very small level and I read the news. I stay informed. I read as much as I can. And, and I, I just hope that if every person could focus on being a good citizen, then that will accumulate. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to voting. I'm going to go vote in person and I just think we just all have to do the best we can to keep positive in the face of all of this fraught, fraught environment. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It is. You know, I think when you look at the, the creative, artistic, very practical and beautiful uh, work you put into the world, I I guess, I'm guessing, um, that there are moments where you might hear or there might be a, a, a conversation in the global world that this is not important activism, like gardening. Maybe this is beautiful, but is it really necessary? And um, I would say that your philosophy in the world and the way you manifest your creativity and good citizenship philosophy through your work actually is an embodied response against that perhaps claim. Um, And that it is this kind of work going out into the world that actually stands a chance of changing who we are fundamentally as a culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope so. I hope, I hope that I can make a contribution I'm not, you know, I'm not out in the world as a political advocate, so I do, I do my part as best I can from, you know, my point, my, my, my ability. Well, thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been a real uh, pleasure to sit with your book and a, a, an honor to speak with you again today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has really been special. Frances Palmer is a mother, a gardener, a businesswoman, and an admired potter whose inventive handmade ceramics are durable and beautiful, functional art, as she says, which is so often exactly what our gardens are as well. Hers certainly is. Frances's first book, Frances Palmer, Life in the Studio, chronicles in words and beautiful photography her life as a gardener, a cook, and a potter, sharing her stories of love, loss, learning, and ultimately the making of a very good life. 
She lives and works in Weston, Connecticut, where her garden is full of flowers and fruits, especially her beloved Dahlia collection, as well as her growing heirloom chrysanthemum collection. As she writes, I am honored and happy to think that people across the world are using my work when they gather in friendship to share a meal and good times. You can follow Frances on Instagram, at Frances Palmer. On November 19th of 2020, at 2 p.m. Eastern, you would have the opportunity to meet Frances Palmer in conversation with Jennifer McGregor at Wave Hill Garden. For more information, go to wavehill.org. Join us again next week for a very special episode of Cultivating Place when we're on a field visit to the creative thinking and actions of the Homeless Garden Project in Santa Cruz, California, where for 30 years a team of dedicated citizens and professionals have been bringing the lessons and heart of gardening to work in ameliorating the many challenges and causes and effects of homelessness in our world. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and listeners supported through CultivatingPlace.com. To read more and see many gorgeous images of Frances's work paired with her glorious garden abundance, head to the podcast tab at CultivatingPlace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, which always has extended notes from me and so you never miss an episode. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the creative cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.